So curiosity, kind of the lifeblood of this practice. We often kind of grapple with discipline and, you know, establishing a rhythm of sitting and maintaining some adherence to a kind of, you know, spiritual practice or something. But um, curiosity is much better than discipline. Yeah? And the practice really does run on it to a large extent. And there is, in a sense, no cure for a lack of curiosity. Yeah? Like, we actually have to find that in ourselves. Because if we're practicing in a kind of incurious way, we won't last too long with it. If something doesn't grab our hearts in a way, it's just very difficult to stay with. And as teachers, we we do our best to like prod and say something that's useful or intriguing or provocative or or directs you back to your mind in some way but we actually cannot manufacture curiosity for you yeah that's something that actually has to come in your own heart and mind and that is that means that it's a very personal spark and so the more I work with people and talk with people, uh, you know, in retreats or, you know, in something or one-on-one in some way, the more careful I am about imposing my sense of what the practice is, should be, yeah. And uh, that testifies to the fact that re- it really needs to be yours, and so in, in clinical, uh, clinical social work, there's like an ethos of, of starting where the client is, yeah? Meaning that there's this sort of, um, yeah, the, the social worker is uh, imagining kind of paths forward solutions, interventions from the, exactly where the client is. And I, I hadn't thought about that phrase for, for many years, but it struck me that, that in some way the, the Dharma starts where the student is. Yeah? That we actually have to find ways of relating to this body of teachings that feel, uh, that spark our curiosity. And this is important in order for practice not to feel a little like we're faking it, yeah, or pretending. Do you? Do you know, we all know at some point it feels like we're really faking it, yeah. <laughs> Maybe tonight, you know, it's like, all right, there's Matthew talking about love and attention. Okay, I'll freaking do it, you know, or whatever. And like, all right. <laughs> And that's, it's supernatural for there to be phases where we're less curious, where we're kind of 
kind of faking it a little bit. We're going through the motions or something. And then at, at some point, that hopefully that gives way and practice no longer feels artificial but feels very, very personal, you know? Like the, the, the path of practice, the dharma, it was, it was made for me, yeah? And so, for you know, in my in my life teaching, yeah, I'm really careful about not teaching in settings where there's mandatory attendance. You know, <laughs> right? So, because you you can do that, you could go, you can kind of go on tour, and I could whatever, like uh, do workshops in organizations or corporations or something like that. But what happens is like the whole staff gets hustled in and they're like, welcome to mindfulness. Yeah. (laughs) And then I'm there and I'm like, you know, I, I only want you to be here if you want to be here, you know, like, and I only want you to be here if there's some, like question that like a seed of intrinsic motivation in you that feels deeply yours, yeah? And it's actually from that seed that, you know, really all the goodness unfolds from there. Is that seed, maybe we call it sincerity, you know? Just wanting to see. And when this starts to actually animate our our practice, uh, we don't care so much about how it's going, yeah, how much progress I'm making, where it's all heading, you know there's much more kind of simple delight just in the fact that we're learning. It, that that that's what actually animates practice. That sense of like, I, you know, I just want to be learning about my mind and body and how suffering arises and the kind of majestic wonder of like what it is to even be aware for there to be consciousness. When we we struggle to create happiness, which is one intention, it's it's like so innocent and to be honored in a way that wish to be happy, the you know, and we go about creating it in our in our practice in the silence. Um, but when we are animated by that that wish to actually create happiness, it injects a kind of agenda. And it leads us more often than not to kind of try to manipulate experience in some way. This is a side adaptation here. Usually meditators are not that interested in learning the truth of body and mind. They are trying to control the body and mind. Whenever there's an attempt to control, you will tire very quickly So just be with your experience as it is. Watch it and learn from it. 
In this way, you'll soon come to understand the truth of body and mind, allowing dharma, dhamma, to fully enter your life. So, curiosity uh, has no agenda. There's no agenda. It's just to know the next moment. And this is very um, conducive to growth, actually. It's a very often see a kind of turning in the heart of practitioners where they they start to get um, really engaged, turned on in a way by their own unfolding, yeah? And uh, there's a kind of energy and momentum that um, that just follows that. So in investigation, this kind of uh, like this curiosity, investigative zeal that I am talking about tonight is um, it's one of the things that we actually do in practice. It's like we like doing things, right? It's like when we're told just to be or something, it's like, well, maybe I'll kind of do something. Yeah. <laughs> and this is actually an invitation to do something, yeah? It, not in our ordinary kind of busy way, but uh, Tejaniya goes on he's to say, like, in the, the seven factors of awakening, of, uh, of mindfulness and investigation and energy and rapturous joy and tranquility and samadhi, concentration, equanimity, he says, the first three are causes. The last four are effects. Yeah. The first three, mindfulness, investigation, energy, this is actually the engine. And then the, the last four, the kind of intense joy and the, the tranquility, the concentration, the equanimity, these are effects. It's not something we actually need to toil with at all. But our place in, the kind of place where we actually invest the energy is, is in mindfulness, investigation, and a kind of uh, an effort. So sometimes we like learning in a kind of more passive way. I was having this, this interesting conversation with... Um, a dharma, a friend of mine who's a meditator, long-time meditator, and she was kind of, um, she was questioning the kind of, in, in, a, in a sweet way, she was questioning the methods of modern dharma, you know, insight kind of practice. And she, she was like, you know, it's too passive. It's just like you just sit up there and talk for a long time and people listen. What happened to like how it was when I was in college when like the professor would call on people, you know? Like, should we be doing that? Should we be calling on people and requiring like, yeah, you, seven fat. What's the fourth factor? Yeah, whatever, like... Um, that would change things, right? 
But it actually, it sort of dovetailed with another conversation I was having around that, that we actually prefer to be passive in our learning style, but it's not the most productive way to learn. Yeah? And that there's something about actually really engaging and mixing it up and all of that that is, uh, uh, yes, yeah, seems to... to um, uh, kind of enhance the the learning, right? And so I, it is actually a question, like w- the pedagogical kind of techniques involved in Dharma. What should those be like? Yeah, it's a, it's a very open, intriguing question for me. Um, but what it led me to think is that that this this kind of it's one thing to hear a, a talk, but actually investigation is that kind of deeply engaged learning. Yeah? Like we're, we're mixing it up with ourselves. And that is, uh, we learn things in a different way than just actually taking it in in a more passive way. Now... Uh, we can't we can't force it, and there are times when we're really just not not interested. We're not interested in our own minds, and there's a certain kind of deference we have to have for moments or even phases like that. Uh, very um, lovely teacher Michelle McDonald, um, Hawaii Hawaiian. Uh, lives in Hawaii, teaches insight insight retreats for many decades now, and um, you know she she's reiterates like if there is not some measure of interest, especially in dealing with like afflictive, difficult emotions, dealing with kind of naughty, knotted emotional terrain, if there's not interest in that, just let it be. It's not a good time to like fake interest in my heartbreak or something, yeah? To fake interest in my whatever, compulsive, driven something, yeah? Because when if we get into like deep terrain where... Um, and and we're kind of like forcing ourselves to try to open to something, to try to learn from some bit of pain. We we can wind up just sort of um, reinforcing our own aversion to it. Yeah, does that make sense? It's like we want to look like where, when are that we pick our spots? When is there genuine curiosity to actually engage with this? And when it's there, we we go, we go. Yeah. So we often say that that the the Dharma it grows in terms of depth and breadth. Yeah. the the depth the kind of range of capacities heart openings insight levels of freedom to which we become more and more acquainted that changes that's the depth dimension and that's typically more celebrated in spiritual scenes that that sort of 
what's represented in the kind of the pinnacle of spiritual achievement is usually something around depth. But critically, breadth, yeah, how how widely the Dharma spreads into all the corners of our lives, this is actually how we become more and more safe and trustworthy for each other. That's actually how our heart becomes more and more of a kind of uh, refuge for other people. It's this dimension of, of, of breadth, of actually bringing the practice into more and more of the the kind of corners and claustrophobic, you know, parts of our lives that tend to be kind of protected from the Dharma. It's like, this is my practice, and we don't really lavish attention in certain aspects of our behavior or mind. But the dimension of the breadth of the Dharma is... um, is important, critically important. And so, um, we, we, at some point in our practice, we have to start getting interested, like where have, has the mindfulness not, what parts of my life have been exempted from the Dharma eye? Yeah? And, that establishing that willingness to look, like when we feel strong enough, safe enough in our experience to look, this is important. I remember I was, um, this is before, years before I was teaching, I was sitting in a peer-led group and we would each take turns to like present something. And I was not... You know, I, we weren't teachers. We were just sharing as peers, as as colleagues. And my week came up to present. And I presented something on, like, how we wake up to the ways in which our practice is just reiterating our own delusions. Yeah? And that was a very icy reception. <laughs> um, and I don't know if I just didn't do it well or whatever, but I was really, I was kind of heartbroken because it was like, and this does happen, we get comfortable enough in our practice and it's like we, we kind of get, sometimes we get a little too cozy, yeah? And there are ways in which we put on some blinders and we're like just to get incurious about certain aspects of our mind. And that is um, not onward leading. That's not onward leading. And so we want to actually bring this this spirit of, of curiosity, of investigation. And this is, um, this testifies to what what I think is a very deep relationship between investigation and uh, and our ethical life, our sila. 
we we really harm from places that are opaque to ourselves. Is that fair? Like when we really see, if we survey our lives and we look at how we've caused harm, um, there's it's it's it, we're not harming from places of clarity and awareness. They were usually opaque to ourselves, and what this means is that investigation becomes almost like a moral obligation because we can't really trust our heart fully unless we know all the different chambers of our mind and others can't totally trust ourselves trust us either and so the kind of commitment is to to understand our mind such that um, the kind of the pressure points, those like super sensitive spots in our being have been investigated sufficiently that people can uh, trust our commitment to non-harming. Yeah. We, we know the experience of, of maybe like tiptoeing around the sensitivities of another, right? That way in which maybe without even knowing it, there's this kind of subtle accommodation walking, you know, walking on eggshells, tiptoeing around the hypersensitivities in the other. And the effect is that our own sense of really relaxing like fully trusting their their heart that is eroded now i, I don't know um, i don't know if we're ever fully transparent to ourselves yeah. but it is a deep aspiration of mine, especially insofar as as I'm in some position of uh, of leadership with a, of teaching of of being a, accountable, like taking good care of the minds of others. I I, I do have a deep aspiration that um, may may I work through my own being such that uh, there are not. There, that I, 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 that there are not deep triggers left, yeah. and I think um, this is something we do for each other. Yeah, this is the way in which our practice becomes a very much um, kind of the inward focus is just inextricably bound with the kind of altruistic spirit of, of not causing harm. So how do we actually do this? We investigate, yeah. Um, Joseph, uh, Joseph Goldstein, the teacher, said, um, he said something sounds kind of outrageous at first, but then, yeah, like 
He said, I, I'm not sure people know that they, before they practice, I'm not sure people know that they have a mind. Yeah? And sometimes when you look at the world and look at people, uh, like just, it's just not, it, it's not at all clear that they just until we're actually introduced and like look at this like wild landscape um, until we're actually pointed as a way of unpacking experience it's very easy to actually kind of overlook that we have a mind yeah as as obscene as that sounds to meditators you know but it's like before I started practice I I don't know. I don't know what I would have said. Like, if you asked me, like, Matthew, tell me about your mind, I would have been like, I would have made like some wild hand gestures and just be like, it's like, ah, you know, I I don't know what I would have said. It would not have been a coherent answer. I know that. Um, So we, we look. It's like, okay, this is the first discovery. There's a lot happening. Yeah? It's like that was... Definitely the first insight of my insight meditation career. Like, I've got issues, you know. And uh, that's where it started, yeah. So, we start to, like, get familiar with this, with this landscape. And, uh, and, and really, the, the kind of path of investigation is, is a lot about about, uh, you know, we kind of actually can underestimate how intense it is to be human. To, we underestimate the depth of, of suffering in the mind. And we also underestimate the, the capacity of the heart. And a lot of the kind of investigation moves ahead with these kind of paired insights of how hard it is to actually be human how deep the kind of um, clinging is woven into the mind and how uh, much grace there feels like in um, the heart and qualities of the heart that we uh, don't actually appreciate until we, we pause. But some of what we're doing is waking up to our to delusion to ways in which we're confused yeah like the buddha said great hatred delusion these are the sort of three baskets of uh suffering yeah engines of suffering and you know greed and hatred or aversion are show up very clearly in the mind right it's like very obvious when like we were aware of the cookie desire, right? That was not like a super subtle thing, like right as we walked past those moon-shaped beautiful things, right? So it was like, okay, we know that. We definitely know aversion, right? We know hatred. This is not a subtle feature of the mind. But delusion, delusion feels exactly like truth (laughs) until it doesn't yeah right so 
this is a this is a kind of in some ways the yeah the the Buddha said ignorance ignorance delusion this is the source of of suffering and so our process of waking up is about noticing delusion and um, this is is subtle and um, I try to to look for ways in which the kind of narrative thread of my life gets disrupted. Like it's kind of going along and da, 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 and then something happens that doesn't totally fit in or it doesn't, it's not easy to absorb in the autobiography I've been telling. It like, it's a little disruptive. It's anomalous data. It doesn't quite fit, yeah? And that might be just that I reacted in some way I didn't expect or something was heavier for me than I anticipated or or even that, you know, kind of we surprise ourselves in, in good ways. Um, and so some of what we we are doing is... Um, is uh, looking at these times, trying not to close down the heart to whatever defensiveness or like, oh, that was a strange response or that doesn't make sense or to, not, to actually not paper that over and try to like fit that somehow into the old story of self, but to use it as an opportunity to look. Yeah? Is there something I'm not seeing? And in doing this, we are practicing untangling the the threads of experience. So normally experience is all kind of glued together. And when we start to sit and get quiet, we start to see like we're actually getting more and more refined in the subtleties of what it's like to be alive. At the surface level, it's it's uh, not it's not so. The surface level is just craving and aversion and what we want and don't want. It's you know we actually have to settle down and start to see like oh we're actually there are different channels of data coming into awareness. There's sensation and emotion and there's words in the mind and pictures and sights and you know all these different actual aspects of sensory experience and we want to start to this investigative process is beginning to untangle these threads from one another and not take for granted our interpretation our first guess at what is actually going on inside of us yeah it's like there's a commitment to to looking more deeply and we're we're trying to apply dharma understandings you know we're trying to this is the kind of contemplative side of practice contemplative in the sense that we're we're marshalling teachings things that we've heard that resonate in our heart how can this apply and we're just like trying to look at things in new ways and see what what shakes out 
specifically, we so often miss what are described as three the three characteristics of dukkha, anicca, anatta, these marks of existence, of, of, of actually seeing the kind of fleeting, um, groundless, uh, you know, like there's no ultimate satisfaction in this moment of experience. It, we can't hang on to it. We can't organize our lives so that it would only be that. We actually have to appreciate the kind of fleeting, ungovernable quality of experience. Even though we, we can influence a lot, we control nothing. And actually appreciating that is part of this investigation because so often we default to the opposite of the three characteristics of presuming that there is everlasting satisfaction in that and presuming that it can be held yeah, and um, that it is, it is um, governable. Now, investigation is not not rumination. Yeah, that line sometimes gets right. You maybe know that line gets a little blurry sometimes, right? It's like, all right, I'm going to investigate this. Yeah, and then we're like chewing the cud, kind of, right? You know, and it just has that kind of stale kind of feeling to it. It's just the mind sort of in loops. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes it's actually part of our own process of healing that it's like to digest certain experiences, the mind can't but help just go in loops and loops and loops, yeah? And I, I don't, dismiss all of that as compounding suffering but a lot of it does and so we want to be attentive to this this differentiation between what what investigation and rumination so this is a a, a researcher uh, who's done they asked some interesting questions about about that are relevant here so they write um Many people try to understand their feelings when they're upset under the assumption doing so will lead them to feel better. But are people's attempts to work through their feelings productive? Do they actually lead people to feel better? A guiding assumption behind, and then he kind of references a whole literature on cognitive reframing and this stuff. He says, a guiding assumption behind that research is that to improve the way we feel about a negative event, it's necessary to change the way we think about it. However, an alternative, equally sizable body of scientific literature indicates that people's attempts to understand their painful emotions are often counterproductive. According to this line of work, when people try to analyze their feelings, negative thoughts become accessible, which lead people to engage in a vicious cycle of rumination, that serves to maintain and exacerbate distress in the short term and undermines people's health and well-being over time. Putting these different lines of research together creates a puzzle. 
we know on the one hand that it's useful for people to work through their negative feelings, but we also know that their ability to do so is rife with difficulty. So the question is, what conditions promote adaptive versus maladaptive self-reflection? In our early research, we reasoned that the answer to this question had to do with psychological distance. We hypothesized that a mechanism was needed to allow people to take a step back from their experience so they could work through it more effectively. We called this process self-distancing. So that's from... uh, different different not not the meditative realm but uh, you maybe hear the kind of resonance with some of the dharma questions that come up for us and i don't totally know how to translate the what they called self distancing into mindfulness dharma language but it it has something to do with not actually being immersed in the, not to be reliving the episode from the perspective of the protagonist, right? That that's actually maybe not useful investigation, right? You know that it's like, it's like, all right, we, we, uh, get our, like, we go into the set, you know, we go on set, you know, and we get our wardrobe on, and it's like, yeah, and then, yeah, right? Like, and we're reliving something, right? And it's like all the energy of that that tangled emotion is there, and it's, there we're very, we're not, dis, we're very enmeshed in, in it, yeah? And that is a, has a different flavor than the sense of, of distance, not in the sense of detachment or not caring or something, but it's like a, a, some space of not being fully identified with the story. Yeah, so maybe it's, I, I, this just occurred to me, but maybe it's like there's some sense of being in the role of the director or script, you know, supervisor or something. Yeah, there's a little bit of a sense of space, of not being embedded in the narrative. And, uh, and meditation gives us tools for actually paying attention to phenomena in a kind of, um, in a way that doesn't congeal into a narrow story. Yeah? Oh, feel a body like this feels like this. I can feel there are strands of these different emotions that are up in me. Yeah, And then the, this is what's happening in the level of the mind. What is going on here? What is, yeah, how can I care for this pain? How, what is this? What am I holding on to? What is being protected? What am I being asked to let go of? We can ask these questions in a way that don't get us more embroiled in the complexities of the situation and right and wrong and blame and praise and all of this. And instead it's, it's like on the ground, in the trenches, what is it like to re-experience that episode, that feeling? 
we look to uh, investigate the secrets we keep. Um, secrets are there. There's zones where mindfulness is is needed. Where, wherever there is a secret, uh, there may be more than these two possibilities, but in my experience, um, we're either, um, sometimes it's like, it's the secrets that we keep are actually important, adaptive. We keep, it's actually to be safe, one has to be, uh, to be secretive, yeah, that's that's a that's sometimes a, a kind of tragic commentary on um, on the possibilities of harm or violence or something. Um, but if there's enough safety, we can look, and sometimes, sometimes our secrets are a testament to that our behavior feels out of step with our own deepest values. And there's a certain kind of um, self-consciousness or shame or something around, around that. And so we, secrets are like these interesting zones where we, we're sort of hiding from others, but we're also hiding something from ourselves. And in this case, in this first species of secret, it's an invitation to actually look and 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 feel into the kind of that sense of being out of alignment with our own commitments and that that's not comfortable but it is an important line of investigation and maybe at some point we feel inspired to to um come into deeper harmony with with what we're committed to yeah but then there's this other kind of secret that's often it's like we've convicted ourselves of of crimes we didn't commit yeah a very different kind of self-consciousness or shame or protection and this is this is a point for our um, self compassion and kindness and um, and often in some ways because that kind of that species of shame usually arise it's it's very relational right in every secret there's an audience yeah there's an audience even if that audience is somebody who's no longer alive or um, yeah but there's like there's an audience and it's a very relational shame is a kind of relational affect and sometimes that's actually healed through just being able to to be seen in one's like totally porous raw naked vulnerable state and just and just to actually have 
non-judgment and kindness in the eyes of the other is like uh, very potent, you know. It's like we, we can't quite get it that it's okay until we see that. Somebody saying it's okay, yeah. The kind of, we look into ways we're, we're honest, ways we're deceptive. This is uh, a researcher, Bella uh, DePaulo. She writes, um, in sort of characterizing lies and deception, she writes, occasionally people tell lies in pursuit of material gain, personal convenience, or escape from punishment. Much more commonly, however, rewards that are sought are psychological ones. We lie to make ourselves appear more sophisticated or more virtuous than we think our true characteristics warrant. We lie to protect ourselves and sometimes others from disapproval or disagreements and from getting our feelings hurt. The realm of lying, then, is one in which identities are claimed and impressions are managed. The realm of lying is is one in which identities are claimed and impressions are managed. We want to investigate where do we feel transparent, where do we feel deceptive, and how is our deception functioning in our social ecology, in our lives. Sam Harris writes... um, When you give yourself the out of lying, you deny yourself the kinds of collisions with reality that are necessary to improve your life. A commitment to honesty is a mirror you hold up to yourself where you can discover who you are in relation to others and in relation to your moment-to-moment experience. Rilke put it uh, this way. I want to unfold. I don't want to be folded anywhere because where I am folded there, I am a lie. There's a kind of rigorous kind of intellectual honesty that we develop with our our own behavior and feeling life through Dharma practice. Gil, <clears throat> Gil, Gil Fransdahl, he, um, mentor of mine, he, he's, he said that, um, uh, he, he, I think he just kind of said it offhandedly, like, I don't know mindfulness practice, it's more like it's honesty practice, yeah? Like it's actually coming into true with ourselves, and that, that aspect of, of really looking how, does our transparency and uh, opaqueness uh, function in our lives is a point of for investigation. Um, now, just a couple more things before we, we finish. Um, So much of this learning comes in the form of uh, 
other people. Yeah. Right? Um, we have our, our limits to see the edges of delusion. But other people are feel empowered to tell us. Yeah? <laughs> At least in, in trusting, loving relationships. It's like, okay... Yeah, I, there are certain ways in which I've kind of always thought like, well, one model of what mental health would be would be something like congruence between how I see myself and how, you know, people who really know me from different angles, they see me. You know, And sometimes we're out of joint, you know, in some way. And it, 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 somebody's seeing something that I just cannot see. And in a deep sense, our, our, uh, our meditative life is about this kind of continual experiment of living and then learning. Living and taking feedback from the world, you know, just from experience. And sometimes that feedback is just, subtle it's like oh i saw myself clinging in this way and now here you know like we actually study the mechanisms through which suffering's generated some of the feedback comes in the form of survey monkey data that comes to me or whatever it's like concrete you know whatever like matthew you kind of f that up you know or whatever so this kind of feedback is actually, um, yeah, to, to be willing to take in feedback is, is important because it, it really, especially critical feedback, it, it highlights the architecture of self-view. Yeah. Like what critical feedback does is it like shines this kind of spotlight at the places in the mind where we cling and defend our honor. Yeah. And like, I am this, I am not that. Yeah. Right. And sometimes in our ordinary life, we actually can't really see the intricacies of that and the points of clinging in the mind but some very critical feedback may be a beautiful way to uh, to see more yeah and curiously this works this is kind of this can be liberating onward leading whether the feedback is on the mark or off yeah, it's like we feel accountable to take feedback when it's true, right? It's like, okay, yeah, that's right. All right, I'll take it in. I don't like it, but uh, or maybe we're initially defensive and then we take it in, right? But for this, for the process that I'm talking about, even when it's wrong, even when it's wrong, it's still doing its own work in showcasing the places of clinging. And where there is defensiveness, there is clinging. 
It's painful to feel misconstrued and some part of us fights against that. It is painful. But there's another aspect of the mind that is just like, um, we, we really can learn. We really can learn. Yeah. And so the invitation is actually just to take it in and wherever the defensiveness is evoked, we use that as a way of learning. And of course, we're using it uh, to be more free, to suffer less. To do that kind of work and to, a lot of investigation requires uh, acclimatizing to a certain level of disorientation. Yeah. The the narrative, like the, the autobiography we're writing all the time, it serves as a kind of reference point and st- stabilizes our, the sense of our own being. It's like, oh yeah, I know Matthew, he, he like this, and um, okay, that happened, and then we just like add that into the kind of the chapter or whatever. But when we're really learning, sometimes there's a very humbling kind of process and we actually have to tolerate a certain measure of disorientation. Like, I don't know how this is all going to shake out. I don't know what this is going to do to my the narrative, the story of me. And it can feel like, you know, falling backwards a little bit. And often the like the, the kind of egoic mechanisms in us just scramble to reestablish the ground. You know, it's like Matthew, you did that and it's like you know, like the kind of egoic cling is like it can almost sense into the groundlessness of that. Like no 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 no. Like I thought I knew myself. I thought I no 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 no. Yeah? And sometimes that, that can become just, when it's touching into some really tender spot in us, the defensiveness that's marshaled by that can be really potent. Yeah? And it's like, I will, I will get my ground back. And in order to do that, you must be wrong. Yeah? That makes sense? And so we actually, like, we're, we're practicing expanding the capacity just to be like to fall backwards. Yeah. And uh, in the end, there is, um, there's just so much delight in seeing. You know? Just the, the kind of, it becomes, um, I don't know, it's like a quiet, ecstatic delight just in seeing. You know, at some point, the, the kind of turning of the heart, it's just like we're, we're less invested at, in protecting the kind of outmoded narrative of who we are. And there's a, just a kind of a fire in, in, in us. It's just like, I want to know. And that knowing, the depo- process of discovering more and more of our mind is so, uh, so rich.
it's enough. Even if we didn't get any happier, that the delight of that is enough. Yeah. Let's just sit for a moment. What uh, intrigues you about body, mind, heart? Where's the curiosity, the intrinsic curiosity? ourselves that the more deeply we understand ourselves the less opaque we become the more deeply trustworthy our heart will be for others and so we practice for ourselves we practice for others you um, I, I uh, class is over I didn't I wanted to have time for questions but um, I kept talking <laughs> but you know you guys were listening so which is nice I stopped talking when you stopped listening basically so but you stayed with it so uh, thank you um, as always just like whatever is of use, pick it up and uh, investigate and leave all the rest behind. So I'll hang around for, for a bit if people have questions or want to chat. Yeah. Have a good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.